the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does the man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak still to us, that these words are not just on a page, but by your Holy Spirit, they are spoken to our hearts. And God, we pray that you would help us. We pray that our minds would be opened and that the eyes of our heart would be open, that we would receive all that you give to us. God, we pray that our vision of what is true and real and good and beautiful would be clear as we look at you. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, we're going to spend a good deal of time in this book, Ecclesiastes, this fall. Uh, you may have little to no familiarity with this book. If you're a decent reader, if you could follow along with what I was reading, uh, you may get the instinct that this is not the perhaps pep talk that you maybe came here for. Uh, for many people, the book of Ecclesiastes is, for that reason, uh, something they avoid. It's strange, it's hard, and it does not sound like what they think the Bible ought to sound like. And yet, the book of Ecclesiastes is rich. It speaks to the people that we are right now and the, the people who have always been. In many ways, People like us have always been on the face of the earth, and yet I can't think of a more 
appropriate time and place to be listening to this book than right here and right now. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes is traditionally thought to be, to be written by Solomon, David's son. Uh, that if you read back through kind of the history of commentary, most people just speak of Solomon as, as the author here. We're not quite sure that it is Solomon. It never says, I, Solomon, am writing this, whereas in the book of Proverbs, it does say that. But you're at least supposed to be thinking of Solomon. The figure that you're supposed to be thinking of as you read this book is a kind of Solomon, a wise ruler who has access to all wealth, uh, on the face of the earth like Solomon did. There are actually two speakers in this book. We started out hearing one person quoting the speaker, the preacher, and then we start to shift into first person where we hear the preacher himself. And that will happen a couple times in the book, and I'll, I'll point that out to you. We actually have some things that get lost to us in English that right at the beginning are really important to pay attention to. In the second verse of this chapter, it says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This word, vanity, may be confusing to you. And the truth is that we have a hard time bringing into English what this Hebrew word is trying to tell us. The best thing that we could, I could probably communicate to you to help you understand what this word is, is not a word, but a picture. So if you would just think to the cold mornings that are coming, they are coming, and you step outside in that cool, gray morning air, and you breathe out, maybe in shock, at that real cold that's greeting you for the first time, and that cloud that comes out of your mouth for the very first time. That cloud, that mist, is what this word is. This is saying, uh, this word hevel, it means mistiness or fog or smoke. And it's saying that just like when you breathe out on a cold morning and it's there, it's really there, but in a second it's gone. This is the idea that the writer is putting in our minds. And what the writer is saying is that all of life is this. It's the breath that you expel, and you can see for a moment, and is gone. It's not a, a solid thing. It's not a well-defined, contoured thing. It's amorphous. It's floating. It's changing and shape-shifting, and then it's gone. This is your life. The author starts this book with this very simple truth. You are going to die. Not only are you going to die, but no one will remember that you ever lived. The whole point of this poem and the way that it starts out is exactly this. That the sun rises, and it sets, and then it rises again, and it sets again. The streams flow down to the oceans, and the streams never run out, but still continue to run to those same oceans. The winds move across the face of the earth, 
and circle back around and around and around and around. Nothing ever changes. You are going to die and nobody will remember or care that you ever lived. Now, some people will care. The people in this room will care. The people who know you and love you, they will care. But if we think not too far back for each one of us, you will know instinctively and objectively that this is true. I know my parents love them, great folks. I will definitely care when they die. I, I knew my grandparents, three out of four of them are already dead. I, I didn't actually know one grandfather, he died before I was born. But I cared at least about the other two of the three that are dead and I will care when my grandfather dies. I met two great grandparents. I cannot tell you anything about them other than that they were old. <laughs> they were very old. They lived to be a hundred, both of them. That's the end of my facts. I cannot tell you their real name. I knew that they were my parents' grandparents and my parents cared when they died. And that is the only way that I cared at all that they did. But their parents are gone to me. I have no idea who they are. I do not know their name. I do not largely know where they lived. I don't know them at all. And when they died, I did not exist. And I have really no emotional attachment to who they are at all. This is going to be you, and it is going to be me. The people who live approximately close to us, who we have close relationship with, we will have investment in one another, and we will care with each other's passing. But some way down the list of your life, no one will remember that you ever existed. And you may be sitting there and saying, I have pictures, I have accomplishments, these will be handed down and somebody will know and somebody will care that I lived. I know Albert Einstein existed, I never knew that guy. You are not Albert Einstein. You're great, right? You're, you're a genius. You are lovely and wonderful. You're not Albert Einstein. And some of you might be saying, but I might be. You're not. <laughs> you won't be at any point that important. All of your accomplishments that are true, significant, real, and worthwhile accomplishments are going to be erased by the tide of history. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that there weren't real, important, valuable, meaningful, enriching people who lived for centuries and centuries in 
Babylon. There were generations and generations and generations of people who did good work and paid their bills, however they did that, and loved their family and were whatever, good folks, bad folks, whatever, relatively famous for the day. Do you know any celebrities of Babylon besides maybe Nebuchadnezzar? No one. Their life is gone. And the, the writer of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, is saying, this is an unchangeable truth of the way the world is. And it is true not just for those lives way before me. It is true for me too. And it is true for every single person who will follow. How then is anything worth anything in this life? If everything that you do is erased ultimately, makes no consequential mark upon the world, if it's all gone anyway, where does one find meaning in life? And this question is actually a question that if you are truly honest with yourself, you are already familiar with. If you read Ecclesiastes 1 as an honest reader, as a waking human being, you will be familiar with this question. What is my life worth? Everything that I seem to do is erased from me and from the history of this earth. Let me give you an example from my own personal life. My children, I have been a father for 14 and a half years. I have lived glorious days with my children where every day, every other day, apart from all the times they made me want to pull my hair out, which is working, and all the times they made me frustrated, there have been so many times where I've looked at my children and said, this is one of the most beautiful, precious moments I can ever imagine in my entire life. I've had hundreds of days of those kinds of moments that deeply formed me and shaped me as a human being. And I can't remember most of them. I can't actually remember the things happening. I can scroll back through my photos and say, oh yeah, that is a thing that happened. I forgot about that. I was talking to my daughter about a camping trip that I went on with her, just me and her, beautiful sunrise. She didn't have a clue what I was talking about. <laughs> my life is already in this moment flying away from me into the void of nothingness. What is my life worth? And this is a question not just for Christians, but for all people. And the way that you answer this question is incredibly important. How and where do you find meaning in this world? And the author of Ecclesiastes is going to take us on a tour through all of these possible answers and present surprising conclusions to us. Right here, by the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 1, you already start to hear it. You should pursue wisdom. 
That is a biblical virtue. There are books devoted to just such a task, including this one. And the author of Ecclesiastes says, the preacher says, I have gone pursuing all kinds of wisdom. And guess what? That didn't work either. Whether I was wise or a fool, it mattered not. What he says is you can't straighten out what is crooked. And I tried in all of my wisdom and I could do nothing. And if you listen to this question that is deeply in the center of your humanity and you do not attend to the answers that are available to you, you will begin to supply and to construct bad answers. Where do you find meaning in this world? How do you wrestle with this question? Now, there are two things that you can do with this question. With the vaporousness of all things, with being locked into this world that is flying away, you can take two approaches to this. I am never going to think about this. This is perhaps the most comfortable option, the option that we are engaged in for the vast majority of our lives. I will not be thinking about how I'm going to die and no one will care. That is an understandable choice. And we see basically a world, a society, a culture that is arranged around that kind of pursuit. We now have the benefit, the pleasure, the blessing of having provided to us a very small device you can fit in your pocket so that at no moment in this world do you ever have to actually think about anything. When you have a single moment of quiet, when you have a single moment to be alone with this question rattling around in your heart and you start to feel the ache of being human and dealing with this question, you can just reach into your pocket and scroll. Infinitely, literally infinitely. There is more information accessible to you and to me in our phones than has ever been accessible to any person Ever There is lifetimes and lifetimes and lifetimes of entertainment and information for you and I to consume good stuff. This is the good part. And there's so much good there that we could spend our entire lives never looking up from our screen and never for one moment having to think a single thing. And by and large, that is what you do and that is what I do. That is the comfort that we provide to ourselves. It is on demand. It is on command. And if that is not enough for you, the infinite supply of entertainment, if that is not enough for you, guess what? We also have hundreds of applications that you can watch all kinds more of entertainment. And if that was not enough... We live in a world that is pushing you and me to all kinds of incredible experiences that by virtue of living here, largely comforted, 
taken care of lives where you don't have to like hike for your water and stuff like that. You can just go eat something awesome. You can go see something awesome. You can hang out with other people who have clubs about eating things awesome. There are so many things that you can do other than think about this. You are going to die and no one is going to remember that you lived. That's one option. It's the far more attractive option. Here's the second option, though not as attractive, is incredibly common as well. The only thing that you can think of is the truth of that question. And you live in despair. You may, you may not be to the point of saying, my life is meaningless yet. But you feel the emotional force of it before you've yet arrived at that conclusion. And you look at the world around you and you find yourself isolated and alone. It seems like everybody else is happy and you are the only one who is not. It seems like everybody else has the secret, the secret solution to this question that is so loud to you. And the, the fact that everybody else can be happy and you cannot is proof that for you the answer is clear. Your own life is meaningless, and everybody else somehow does have meaning. You are baffled, confused, and isolated from a life of meaning and joy. All you can think about is this thing. And that, the truth is, is so common. If you are in that position, you need to hear that and understand that. That what you are describing and feeling in that moment is probably being experienced by a significant percentage of the people that you are watching. And the only difference between you and them is you are inside you and not inside them. And they are maybe better at faking it than you are. But there are so many people who know the truth of what you are feeling and describing. It is a natural and normal and common part of just being alive. The despair that you feel is a sign that you are alive. It is not a sign that something is uniquely and profoundly wrong with you. The truth of that second option, the meditation on this question, the truth that is revealed to all of us is that something is deeply wrong. What both camps of people understand intuitively or rationally, something is not right 
in this world. Something deep and fundamental and foundational. Something is horribly wrong. And that sense is correct. The preacher is providing for us an accurate diagnosis. In the book of Romans, Paul says quite plainly, all of creation is groaning and longing for redemption. We live in between two worlds. Zach Eswine, in his commentary on this book, says that much of what the preacher is talking about in the book of Ecclesiastes is this sort of residual memory of, of a place that we were made for, which is Eden. You were made for a place where life did not vaporize and disappear. You were made for a world where meaning was not hard to find, but was evident, apparent, and visible. And the fact that you and I either distract ourselves away from or zero in on and meditate on this rupture is a sign that Eden is in our blood and it is gone. And yet, there is hope. You have a limited set of options. This is just the plain truth. You have a limited set of options when you reckon with this reality that the preacher is talking about. You can say, I have to make all the meaning I can for myself. Because I will quickly be dead, I might as well find a way to enjoy this ride while I can. This is the primary way that most people deal with this. I cannot find what is real and good and true and beautiful for myself out there as a thing that actually exists, so I will make it for me. I will find the things that make me happy, and I will hold tight for as long as I can and hope that I can close my eyes hard enough that I won't have to look at the truth. Another option is to say there is no arguing with this truth. There actually is no meaning. And you, if you have said yes to this solution, have felt the weight of all that conclusion. And if you are alive, you are an incredibly strong, determined individual. Because everything that you've accepted would tell you you should not. For the person who is busy making their own meaning and the person who has given up on meaning, I would present a different option, which is that you were in fact made for meaning. And the grief that you feel is a sign that there is yet something there. There is no easy solution 
There is nothing that I can tell you that this book will tell you that if you just take steps one, two, and three, then it will just all feel better. What I'm going to tell you is you are going to deeply struggle with the echoes of this question for the entirety of your life. Because I cannot tell you anything that will magically in a moment unbreak what is broken. You and I live in a ruptured world that is broken open in half when it ought to be whole. However, the fact that you are longing for repair means that you intuitively understand that you were made to be whole and forever held in the hands of the one who made you. You were made for the comfort that can only be found in life with the God who is not trapped by a cycle of death and despair and disappearance. What the author says in, first, in Ecclesiastes 1 is that under the sun, there is a world that is vaporous and flying away and disappears. But you, in fact, have access to a world that is above the sun. Because we understand that if there is, in fact, an iron dome over top of us where there is nothing more than what we see, then there really is nothing and it is flying away. But what the whole story of the scriptures is going to tell you is the iron dome is a lie. That in fact, there is a fracture running straight through the middle of the iron dome between you and heaven and earth. And in through that splitting open is all of the eternal, unerasable meaning that you could ever long to find. And you and I might live with the wounds and the scars and the infection of a world that is not what it's supposed to be. But if this story is true, then those things don't have the final word. And in fact, the story of the gospel, the story of Jesus Christ, is that God enters into a world profoundly disrupted and fractured, and he does not isolate himself from the things that have swept Eden away, but has instead put himself square in the middle of all of our meaninglessness and says, even in this thing, I will provide the meaning that I have intended. The very thing that makes your life and mine appear to be meaningless is death. And what did the creator God do? He entered into the instrument of meaninglessness himself and said, I will not be conquered by this thing. So that the heavens and the heaven of heavens might come to earth and all the brokenness that we can muster, we cast upon him. All of our own meaninglessness, the torture and the despair, the wisdom that makes no sense, we threw at him with everything we have and he accepted it, he embraced it, he went down to the very pit of despair itself and he did not stay dead. Life 
without this God is rightfully one that should cause you to despair. And life with this God in this moment will still not heal you of all these wounds. But life with this God puts your eyes forward towards a day when life under the sun and life over the sun will one day meet and be one forever and death itself will die and you will live full of life and goodness forever and ever as you were mated, as God intended and as he has purposed to accomplish by his own life and death and resurrection. If you are here today distracting yourself away from this question, you are distracting yourself away from the gospel. If you and I are too busy entertaining ourselves, being wrapped in our own busyness, being caught up in the shiny toys of this life, you are not helping yourself. You are killing yourself. Open up your eyes. Be still for a moment. Just be a person and think about this pain, this sadness that so suffuses this world and hear what is on the other side. That the God of creation has moved in and he will not move out. And if you are trapped in despair... If you are trapped in the weight of trying to endure, trying to make your own meaning, you are engaged in a good thing. You are trying to survive. And you should reach for every help and every tool at your disposal because your despair is going to lie to you and say that the only truth in the world is this despair and it is not the true story of the world. It is a partial truth. There is despair. There is the question of your own death. There is the question of how you might endure and make a life that is full and rich and consequential. But... The answer is not what despair will tell you. There is even for you and for me life. So reach out. Do not surrender. Be carried. Even when you are too broken to continue yourself your despair is not telling you the whole truth. And though you have endured thus far, the Lord Jesus himself sees you and all of the isolation and pain that you carry. And to you especially, he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Though you are overwhelmed by forsakenness, he will never, ever forsake you. The gospel is for you too, even if you can barely see it or believe it. If you are here today, trapped in this question, listen to the answer that God has presented in himself. The preacher could not find wisdom anywhere else 
but the wisdom of God is before you. It is in the crucified and resurrected and ascended Lord Jesus, the Son himself, who brings life over the Son to all of those who yet toil under it. Your life all by itself is a vapor, but your Creator counts every single one of them and has destined you, has prepared you, has rescued you so that not one of your breaths is wasted. And he will, in fact, redeem everyone. Come and find Jesus this morning and find a shelter that will not fail. Let me pray for us. Father, when we, when we listen to what our, what our guts have been telling us and then listen more carefully to the scriptures, we can hear and we can see what is true, that the world is not as it should be, that it is not as it was and it's not as it will be, and with that comes all kinds of discomfort and pain. It comes with so many questions. And Father, I pray that you would help us. For those of us who do our best to ignore and to distract ourselves away from this question, God, I pray that you would grab our attention, not so that we would despair, but so that our hearts would leap alive in true joy and not mere distraction. Help us to hear and to receive the comfort it is the gospel, the truth that our only comfort in life and in death is that we belong to Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray for those who are caught in the grips of despair, who wonder if their life matters, if all of this is true, that death just erases everything. And God, I pray that you would grab them, that you would embrace them, and you would tell them the truth that they find so difficult to believe that their life matters and is consequential and that it need not be so that death, death would make all irrelevant, but for them, they have a different kind of life available to them. Father, I pray for all of those who already know that and are still despairing who are feeling the, the weight of de depression and anxiety and the fear that is so readily available. God, I pray for those who, who've already called upon your name and are still feeling those things. I pray that you would help them to believe that it is not a sign that there is something uniquely wrong with them, but something that is uniquely wrong with the world. Rescue Rescue, rescue, Lord Jesus. God, we thank you that you have not abandoned us, that our greatest hopes can yet be realized in more, only in life with you. God, we are a people with wounds and with questions. 
And here we hear that there is a place for us with you. May we all find our comfort and our satisfaction there. That you would be worshipped and glorified and your people made whole. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.